Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast presented by Dr. Jody Jones DDS. We are part of the 440 Sports Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Back after almost a month's worth of absence, I've had open heart surgery and have been just trying to get over that. Don't know how regular the podcast will be in the next couple of weeks as I just frankly get over a health issue that's going to require a lot of rest. But I had the energy to do one today and with the postseason on the horizon, I felt like it was a good and appropriate time. So I hope you enjoy what we have put out today. Chip Frederick is our guest. He appears on our guest line, which is sponsored by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, give Taylor or Russell a call. That number 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Now on to our podcast with Chip Frederick. Chip Frederick joins me today. It is Tuesday. It's been... Almost a month since we did a podcast, a lot has happened with Vanderbilt Baseball and with me since we last did this, but Chip, thanks for joining us today. This, this is always the most fun and interesting time of the year. It is, Chris, and I hope, uh, you know, first of all, I know the people on this uh, who listen to this regularly, and I know there's a lot, and there are a lot of people who don't comment, want to know how you're doing, and, and, and uh, you know, we're happy to hear your voice, and, and uh, I know you've been through a lot, and maybe just... Now that you have this forum, just maybe give us a couple minutes to how you're doing, because I know a lot of people are concerned, and I'm glad you made it out the other end. And and uh, I know it has not been a fun experience, but one that I know you're glad you had it done, right? I mean, it's it, it was a scary time for you, but I'm I'm glad you're kind of making your way out on the other end. Yeah, it, it was for background for people. Um, for about two years, I've not been feeling. Myself, you, you can probably even hear it a little bit in my voice today as I'm recovering from all this. But for about two years, my energy has really been lacking, and, and I like to run. I'm not fanatical about it, but if I could run 20 miles a week, I would. And, you know, running a couple miles at a time has never been an issue for me. Uh, even when I don't run for a few weeks, I can get up and, and do it a lot of times. And it got to a point to where running one or two tenths of a mile um, and not even at the pace that I do it was just beyond taxing. I'd be bent over uh, gasping for breath. Little things uh, like going up the stairs in the house, it, it just left me so winded and sometimes lightheaded. And um, I had a, had my yearly physical the day Vanderbilt season open. And my doctor had spotted a heart murmur. And as they dug down deeper in the coming weeks, uh, came to find out I had a defective heart valve that I was born with. Um, and after a while, calcium builds up on the layers of that valve. What it was is um, the valve coming out of my aorta has two flaps instead of three. Uh, and then you get a layer of calcium built up on that. And then it makes it really hard for blood to, to flow through your heart. Um, once I figured out, or once the doctors figure out what the problem was, Usually a year or two from when you start finding symptoms or two or three years, and I've had them for probably two, um, if you don't get them treated, you'll die. And so I probably had a longer runway for surgery than, than the time in which I chose it. But once it gets to be kind of a life or death thing, I didn't want to mess around. I didn't want to sit and ponder heart surgery um, you know, all summer and, and have that to think about. I just wanted to get done and over with, even though it just, in terms of professional timing, it, it couldn't have been worse. But I wanted to get it done. I wanted to take care of it. And I'm, I'm probably supposed to be resting a little bit more than I should. Uh, but that explains why we haven't done one of these in a month. I'll probably ease back into it a little bit here and there. But I'm, I'm feeling better. I am now three and a half weeks out of surgery. I can still feel it in my chest. You know, I think anytime they cut your chest open, um, you're going to feel it a while. And I'm told I'm probably not going to feel normal till November or December. But uh, praise God for, for good doctors. St. Thomas is a phenomenal place. 
Um, if you ever have heart issues, I can't recommend them enough. I've had a lot of people reach out to me in texts and messages and things, and I appreciate all those things. But yeah, um, I, I'm feeling better. Um, it, it's still going to be a long road to recovery, but I can't wait to feel the way that I used to feel before this problem popped up. And even though it's going to be a few months in getting there, uh, it just has affected my energy so much the last few years. You can you can see the number of podcasts we put out compared to what we used to do. Um, I, I think that had a lot to do with my own energy uh, to do or not do things. And to, to get this corrected and, and everything else with my health is great. So it was just a matter of fixing this. And I think once this is I'm recovered. It takes your heart about six weeks to 80% recover. And again, I'm about halfway there. But uh, I'm looking forward to, to life on the other side. And thank you for asking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the calcium situation. The calcium. I know there's a test, and I had it done a couple years ago a calcium scoring test. Yeah. Uh, did you have that done? Because I know it's really um, uh, inexpensive. I mean, it's like a $50, $60, $70 test. I know there's one on Whitebridge Road here locally in Nashville that you can go and get done. Did you? Is that where you kind of determine that calcium situation? Because I've heard of that before. Um, and it's just a simple, it takes like 10 minutes to go. It's a, it's an inpatient. You go in and set up an appointment. Is that where you have that done or? No, the, the funny thing is they did that a year and a half ago with me when I started complaining, uh, and that's in your arteries and my arteries were fine. So that was the puzzling thing was that when you looked at the arteries and everything, there were no blockages, no buildup or anything. It's all on that valve, but that test does not detect the valve issue. Okay. And I had to do that with basically an ultrasound, and that's when they found the valve to be defective uh, in the middle of March, right when the NCAA tournament was playing. Uh, and once they narrowed that down uh, and started looking at that, they, they found stuff with me that, that nobody knew I had been dealing with, but it explained a lot. So, yeah, that was, that was the diagnosis that, that put me on this path. Well, I guess the moral, the moral of the story is if there is one, uh, and probably some advice you can give people is – Look, guys and gals, if you're not feeling good, do something about it, right? I mean, yeah. if this is something that I think you mentioned in a post that if, if you had not detected it, uh, you might not be with us right now. So yeah. um, it's something that I think a lot of people put off stuff, especially during COVID. They put off, um, you know, preventative care and just routine maintenance of your body and your health. And I guess that's probably something uh, you would express, right? I mean, you just don't put stuff off. Yeah, two, two things. I think if I'd lived a sedentary lifestyle, um, this would have been harder to detect because they would have blamed shortness of breath and things on that. Um, but fortunately, tr- just the, the act of trying to run in those things and being capable of it, uh, those pointed to the this is not a normal situation and and yeah I think what you said is accurate if you don't feel right keep pressing for for a couple years I just kept saying I don't feel right and nobody could find anything and you know COVID got blamed because I've been through that a couple times not in a bad case but um, fortunately I had good doctors I had a good physician who spotted the big issue and and here we are moving on. Uh, speaking of moving on, um, <laughs> yeah, Vanderbilt going on. moving on with its season. Um, boy, processing the last few weeks was really difficult for me because when, you, when you've covered a team for 20 years, it seems like there's always a point of reference. Like this season is similar to that one, and you know this follows a pattern that we saw before. And, and the patterns with them have been pretty consistent for a decade. They start playing their best ball middle to end of May, and then it goes into June, and they just keep getting better. This one was unlike anything I've ever seen, where they played their worst ball at the end of the year, and it just was hard to get your arms around that when you've seen something that's been so different for so long. Yeah, it's it's been a, a, a very topsy-turvy year, Chris, and one that you mentioned is as unusual as there's been in his uh, Tim Corbin's tenure here. I think there's been there have been years that uh, they've you know set SEC records with number of wins and a and a uh, record that looked like it was in danger this year of being broken by Tennessee. It wasn't. There have been years that it's kind of been a an upward climb as you mentioned towards the end of the year and that's happened more than it hasn't happened 
towards that you know late April May push that a Tim Corbin coach team is known for. This year started off as you said, and I'm not I'm not talking past tense here, but just to summarize where we are. I can remember uh, when we did a pod um, after the Oklahoma State series when they lost two out of three, and and uh, you mentioned to me that you know we talked afterwards that. We thought Oklahoma State was very, very good, which they are, and they've proven that. And that was a, uh, you know, a, a tough, tough way to come out of the shoot early on. Um, but you, you mentioned to me then in the press conference afterwards that you know, you, you know, I, I think Tim's really not upset about this as much as he would normally be because he thinks that Oklahoma State's really good, and thus he thinks he pretty has a pretty good team himself, and that remains to be seen. Then they roll off, what was it, 17, 18 wins in a row at the early point of the season, just you know, going to Hawaii, taking four games and skipping along. And, and then things, you know, they win their first series against Missouri at home, sweep them. And then for the first time, they face adversity in game two after wiping South Carolina off the face of the map. Uh, on a Friday night game, ten to nothing, they finally lose eight to two in game two. Carter Holton ha- takes the loss and gets hit up pretty early, and then it's just been up and down the bouncing ball ever since. I mean, Tennessee comes in here and sweeps and 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 go to Auburn and 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 lose two out of three, but you know have a game in between where they scored nineteen runs in game two. It's just been a year of this team trying to find their identity, trying to find their leaders, not sure who those leaders are. If you're looking from 30,000 feet up, um, having some inconsistencies with some players that you didn't really think would have those kind of years, really not having a dominant pitcher that you call a number one. Um, there's various opinions that could be thrown out there as far as who that is. And at different points of the season, you got a kid on your staff and Christian Little who, if you look three months ago, four months ago before the season started, you say that guy's going to be in the rotation, got to be in the rotation with his uh, the arm that he has. He has some issues early on, some confidence issues. He gets sat out for a series. Um, so there's been sort of this um, situation all year long of uncertainty which for a guy like Tim Corbin who preaches consistency and has had that throughout his tenure more than he has not, it has to be a head-scratcher. I think the most, you know, when you hear the guys in the SEC network doing the SEC tournament and they're talking about Vanderbilt, at one point Chris Burke just said, you know, uh, who's the color analyst, played at Tennessee, but he's pretty frank and uh, I trust his opinion, um, you know, 95% of the time. It's just it's just not been a model year for Vanderbilt what they're used to. And when you don't have that and you're the teams like Alabama football and you're the teams that have been dominant and a team like Vanderbilt has gone to Omaha as much as they have, has won it over, you know, twice uh, in the most recent years, at least if they haven't won it, they've been there a lot more than they haven't. And when that slows down and normalcy happens – which in a crazy weird year that this has been with some more parity in the conference, it, it causes everybody to take a step back and say, you know, what are the reasons, what are the causes? But that's where they are. They have baseball to be played uh, here. They can do whatever they want to do with it and put their minds to it. But they got a tougher road than they usually have had in the past, and, and it starts this weekend in, at Oregon State. I have been pretty consistent in my opinion all year that this was a really good baseball team. Um, I was probably alone in that through most of the season. One thing that I look at is run differential. Uh, When you're plus 30-something in SEC play, you're a good baseball team, maybe a great baseball team. And it just was really weird to me about – I felt like all the the facts like that supported the argument, even if the fans didn't believe it. And then the last two weeks, the wheels just fall off, starting with that LSU series. Now, you can go back to that and you can pinpoint some things. Uh, I think Carter Holton throwing in that series would have made a difference. I'm not saying that was a bad call to hold him. Um, Your pitchers need rest before the NCAA tournament. And he'd had three or four pretty long outings in a row. So I don't question that move at all. I think their explanation for it would be, that it's just a brutally tough league, and sometimes those things happen. Um, 
I mean, I, I think it's probably more complicated than that. But talking to someone over there yesterday, that was kind of how they sized it up. But it just was interesting to me that my faith in this team really wasn't shaken until the last two weeks. And now I don't know what to think of them. And then on top of that, they got a pretty brutal draw in the regional. Yeah. And, and you know, the last time we did this podcast, um, thinking back on it, was I think we did um, – was it I think it Kentucky was the day series? after the Louisville game, perhaps. Yeah, the, yeah, you're right, right. And so, you know, a lot has happened. As we talked about since then, they go to Georgia. They win two out of three. They take two out of three from Kentucky. Uh, A&M came in here and, and took care of them, which we know that A&M is a really good team. But, yeah, if it was after Louisville, yeah, I mean, things look pretty good. But taking two out of three from Georgia, the Arkansas game, Probably the 10 inning game is the pinnacle of that stretch that we haven't talked about. And we're not going to, of course, rehash everything that's happened since then, since the last pod. But my goodness, when you go to the number four team or at the time, top five, they were somewhere in that, whatever, depending on the ranking. And Bradfield hits the bomb in, in the 10th inning and you take two out of three. You got to like where you are at that point in the season. And uh, and then to turn around, beat middle, and then have LSU just come in after they got swept by Ole Miss and sweep you at home, and you give up just an ungodly amount of runs, 41 runs, I guess it was, in that series, over a three-game series. It just really um, – it, it headed into Hoover in a way that was this team and this fan base is not used to. And I think yesterday, though, Chris – if you watch the press conference, and I know you were there, uh, we talked about that. It was not, you know, Corbin's demeanor was pretty much like it has been, where he takes the whole one game at a time, and we're not talking about Oregon State. We're talking about San Diego. You could push play on a recorder and watch that, and that's what he's done for the past 16 years, so to speak. But I kind of got the feeling that it was the main emphasis that he was saying was is how difficult this league is and how successful this program has been been in the month of June and what it has done overall as far as the the lures of NCAA baseball. I I think that, you know, when you talk about how he has built this program – going to the 16th consecutive NCAA tournament. That's an amazing accomplishment considering where the program was when he got here um, and where to a level where not hosting is a huge disappointment to uh, you know his fan base and to his team, more importantly. You know, they're disappointed they're not hosting. That's, that's something you get used to, and that's something that gets in your DNA when you're recruited by Vanderbilt is your, your certain expectations. And those kids know. Those kids know. They probably – there's probably some kids, believe it or not, who read this board, who read your board or listen to the podcast. But that's an unbelievable accomplishment when you consider it's the best conference in baseball and you consider who's in this league and you consider the Mississippi State and North Carolina State are both at home this week with State winning the national title last year and they're sitting at home. So, you know, you have some down years, um, but, you know, I, I don't see that – with all the money that's been poured in around the conference and stadiums and around the country, really. And to think that we've been uh, to the tournament 16 years in a row, nobody else can say that. So I think it was kind of a, not a campaign, so to speak, but I thought that was an emphasis of his press conference that, look, you know, we're here. We've been here. We're going to stick around. We have the, you know, we have guys who've played in this tournament. We have a legacy here. And it really takes a longtime Vanderbilt fan and a Vanderbilt follower of this program to realize that how amazing that is. Um, when you've been eight years, for the last eight years, you've been to Omaha and you've won two national championships and two runner-ups during that. Um, so there, there are very few SEC teams can say that. I can't think of any that can say 16 years in a row with that run. So I've kind of felt like, that was his um, theme of that, that this team, you know, they know. They know what their legacy is. They know what the history of this program is, and they are uh, going to do all they can to defend it. And if you, when you think of it that way, you step outside the box with all the stuff that's happened. And I'm not trying to make excuses, but there's going to be some years that are not as good as the others. And I thought that was the theme of his press conference yesterday. I'm looking at the teams that got – hosting bids 
Vanderbilt played six of those teams and went five and eleven against those teams. Although I don't think the run differential was as dramatic as the record was. In fact, I think they outscored Auburn in the series. I think the OSU series was a tie. Uh, they did outscore Florida and win that series. Louisville was one nothing. Um, I think A&M outscored them, but it wasn't by a ton of runs. Uh, and, and then the Tennessee series, they lost all those by what four runs each or whatever. You know, and if you want to throw in LSU, which was I think a hosting caliber team, although it didn't get it, uh, then they're they're five and fourteen against those teams. Now from that point down, um, you know I, I think they played better. They they took two or three against Georgia. They took two or three against Arkansas. Both of those two seeds, um, you know, played played very well against teams that didn't make the tournament. But the dividing line for this team seems to be right now that. There's a wall of a type of team that they run up against that those really great to elite teams were just a hump that they have not gotten over all year. Yeah, and and um, that has been the theme all year, it seems like. This, this team is not – you know, I know there's been some talk about how Lighter and Rocker perhaps hit some deficiencies, and there, there might be some truth to that. I mean, when you can roll out some – when you roll out two guys, one of which will probably – could possibly be in the big leagues by September and then rocker remains to be seen, but I mean, just got a world of talent and, and uh, he'll get redrafted again. And, and we hope that his progress is a positive one and he can do the same down the road. But when you can roll two guys out there, first round picks and it does, it, it, it tends to make you um, plug some holes and hide some things that maybe not would be apparent if they weren't out, if the, if they weren't out there, and um, and and this team, I mean, still you've still got the Enrique Bradfields who can run like the wind and and do do his thing when he's aggressive on the base pass and 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 had another great season in that category. But the six through nine spots, really five through nine spots, killed him. And if you look at the SEC stats on the hitting wise, it just it it looks far different than it did last year. Now there were some deficiencies. We talked about that and, you know, towards the end of the year in the tournament hitting, um, and not making contact and hitting the ball the other way that showed that reared its head in Omaha as well. And partially through the NCAA tournament, but yeah, those, those elite teams, um, they're being that constantly reminded by people, which are, it has a point that the, a lot of these teams are older. They've took the COVID year. They've had, uh, deals where the uh, the the transfer rules were changed, and you had teams with that were at the bottom of the leagues, and a lot of places came and and found their ways to the top. and And uh, I don't think Tim wants to really hear about that. He mentioned yesterday that he's had some guys. I mean, Bradfield played in Omaha last year, and Colwick. I mean, you got these guys you can name that played there, but uh, and it's just always the performance is not going to be the same from year to year, and you can't count on it in that way. So. Uh, yeah, it, it, it'll, it'll be um, how the NCAA did the tournament and, and paired it, I would think. And tell me if this is correct, but by being sent to the number three team in Oregon State, I guess it means we were one of the lower two seeds, right? I mean, if, if that's Well, the case, that's, that's never been how they've done it, but it seems to be a little bit of how they did it this year. Like, I'll give you a for example – a lot of people were projecting Wake Forest to go to Knoxville. And I, I thought, well, if they do that, that's that's a real screwing for Tennessee. Wake Forest was, if you look at predictive computers, like the sixth best team in the country. And that's not a draw that's, that's worthy of, of the number one overall seed. Now, what they did instead was sent Georgia Tech to Knoxville. Uh, Tech is a kind of a middle of the road two seed, not not an extremely tough draw, but not an easy one. No, Tech can hit the heck out of the ball. Um, in fact, Tech averaged as many runs as Tennessee did uh, during the regular season, which is interesting. So, just as an aside, keep an eye on that because stylistically, that'll be an interesting regional. But the, the point I'm making is they've always done this by geography, it, but it seemed this year. Because you 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 sort of have to do some gymnastics to send Vanderbilt out to Corvallis, given the abundance of of nearby options. You had Louisville, um, North Carolina had been an option. Virginia Tech certainly a lot closer. Um, in fact, I don't know that they could have sent Vanderbilt any further from home than they did. Uh, so that was interesting to me. They they've not really done it on on 
and an S curve, which I've always argued they should. But it did almost seem like in this case that, that it was almost like ranking the, the two seeds and saying, well, um, if you're a strong one, you're going to get a week or two. And, and at least in Vanderbilt's case, now did, that didn't carry across the board. Uh, I think Stanford was a team that probably got a tougher draw than it deserved. But it did seem like that's not usually the way it's worked, but it did seem like at least in Vanderbilt's case, that's more of how it worked this year. Yeah, and I think in normal years, uh, like with Gonzaga going to um, Blacksburg. Miami, yeah. yeah or was it Blacksburg? Virginia Tech, yeah. They're going it is Virginia region. Tech, yeah. So you would think in a normal geographic situation, but I think there was they play, They were Oregon State and them they had played. Um, yeah. uh, there was some conf- conflict. There's always going to be situations where you don't want to really put teams that have matched up. That's why you'll never see two SEC teams match up. Um in a regional, or you know, they 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 try to do that on the front end. But I, I thought that, um, in guessing, I was driving back from the Braves kid the game with my kids, and so I was listening to the selection show. Um, I'm sure it had to be a little nerve wracking. I didn't couldn't follow it because the signal kept pixeling on the interstate. But you know, I didn't realize that we were the last one <laughs> in the last bracket. Um, I mean, you had to know. I'm sure Tim and them knew they were they were going to get in, but it still just it, it doesn't make. Um, things any easier when you've kind of been through what you've been through the last 10 days and then you're in the last grouping. I, I honestly thought we were going to go to Louisville again. And that when that didn't happen early, I knew there was going to be something probably a little bit screwy uh, compared to years past. But uh, I, I think overall, I mean, if, if we're talking about the brackets, I, I'm, I, I can't see how they, I mean, North Carolina State and Rutgers, I think got a, a, a messed over really badly. Um, I don't know who probably, you know, Ole Miss probably gets in because they swept LSU on that merit alone the week before uh, LSU came here and swept us. But um, there are some tough decisions that have to be made uh, each year. But I, I kind of think Rutgers, from reading and reading various boards and stories, it looks like Rutgers and North Carolina State had some pretty big beefs. Um, I don't know what you think, and I've read your article from your your other website, the Southeastern 14, but it looks like um, you know, pretty much that's an agreement for most pundits across the country. Yeah, that, that seems to be the consensus. I, I don't know that I have an opinion on that as much. I haven't dug into State's resume, but I know Aaron Fitt certainly did and wrote about it this week. He feels like that NC State had a big gripe. Um, I did talk to somebody on the staff yesterday. They swear they don't know the pairings until they see them on TV with everybody else. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's um, and that's probably the way it should be. Um, yeah. And you know, at, at first when I saw the San Diego pairing in that region, um, I was thinking that there would be a common opponent with Hawaii, but that was San Diego State earlier in the year. That, uh, and you know, that that's where those guys just put their head down the support staff and try to get as much film and they this is where you your connections as a coach from doing this a long time like tim corbin and his crew have done this is where they reach out and they get spray charts and they get uh from other coaches and they get video as much as they can and and with all the games being on you know a lot of these games being on espn plus and and the various streaming services you can get a lot of that it doesn't make it easy uh, but this is when who you speak to at conventions and who you've coached with in the past on USA teams or who you've been an assistant coach that knows an assistant coach, that's where it helps. And, and because those things are vital in today's, in today's world of the shift um, being prevalent, it's Vanderbilt that does just as much as anybody and, and knowing tendencies, um, it's hard to believe, but they will have a pretty good feel of all these teams will have a pretty good feel of one another and uh, real quick, and they'll be able to implement, implement those across the country in these various regions. This season of the Vandy Sports Podcast has been made possible by my friend, Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. When it comes to general or cosmetic dentistry services, Jody is the best in Nashville. Just check out his client list. It testifies to that. He sees movie stars, music stars, athletes, coaches, you name it. Jody is the dentist of choice for stars in Nashville, but he sees regular folks like you and I as well. What people love about Jody's office is the ambiance. It's relaxing. It's friendly. 
Someone described it to me as a tooth spa. Whether your needs are general or cosmetic, go see Jody today. Call him 615-270-2322. See him at 55 Music Square East, not far from downtown or the Vanderbilt campus. Jody is a former Vanderbilt football player and a huge Commodore booster, so go and talk Vandy sports with him while you're there. Go see Jody Jones today. Thank him for his support of this podcast because without it, this season would not be possible. One thing that was interesting yesterday, one of their talking points seemed to be, we love to play on the road. Our guys love to play on the road. And and you look at it, this year they went at home. These are all home series. 0-3 against LSU. 0-3 against Tennessee. 1-2 against A&M. 0-1 against Louisville. 2-1 against Florida. One and two against Oklahoma State. It, it's remarkable. I, I don't think I've ever seen a Vanderbilt team play so poorly at home against the the cream of the crop in the league. You know, I was thinking, hey, may, maybe they catch a break because I, I think to me, far and away, the, the easiest regional or, or the regional host that I, I thought got the best treatment. In terms of getting those, I feel like East Carolina, Georgia Southern, and Maryland are all a notch behind those other 13. The computers certainly would argue that. I think your hope was if you're Vanderbilt, maybe you get sent to one of those destinations. That that didn't happen. But I will tell you this. One thing that I do wonder, and and again, I, I don't think they got a favorable matchup. Uh, I think they're going to be very hard-pressed to advance out of the weekend. But I feel like a lot of times they got bit by the home run ball against some of those teams. And you look at Oregon State this year. Oregon State only hit 50 home runs, only gave up 32. They are going to be playing in a park where home runs don't come cheaply. And that and this whole, if that whole we love to play on the road thing is legitimate and they can rally behind that, again, I don't perceive them to win this regional but there are a couple of things there that maybe play to their advantage a little bit given the way the season played out. Yeah, and, and you hear about um, these coaches will say, a lot of SEC coaches, not just you hear it from Vanderbilt in years past, but it's you know it's going to be a breath of fresh air to get out of the league to this, you know, the, the, the consecutive weekends in a row, one after the other, the, the, the gauntlet, as they call it, that it is hard as the Southeastern Conference. And sometimes you've heard that many times that you, know, you get out of there and it's refreshing to play somebody else you haven't played or play in an environment uh, that you haven't played in before. And, and Tim mentioned in a press conference a couple weeks ago, and maybe it was a week ago or before the SEC tournament, how this team he thinks cherishes playing on the road. And, and there is something to it. Having played before, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's a fun thing to get out there and play in some of these different parks and against teams you haven't played played before and you know now they're on they're on their time now it's not Vanderbilt's time and they're out of they're they're not students anymore the classes are over and you can do whatever you want to there's no limits as far as during the week as far as how they can practice I know they took two days off uh, after the tournament which was warranted and I think a great idea but now it's back to business and just the whole process of traveling, um, not being around, maybe some distractions you might have at home and, 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 and seeing that situation as being a positive. I think he's, he's talked about it now twice now publicly, how this team, the enjoyment of being on the bus and being on the airplanes and hotel rooms and late night, uh, not necessarily late night card games, but just watching a game, the NHL playoffs or the NBA playoffs, and you got 30 guys in a room watching it there's some definite camaraderie about that that helps but um it goes from year to year i mean this team has some years been unbeatable at at hawkins and i'm not saying this is it's it's a detriment or a a swipe at the fans uh that they don't play well at home it's just from year to year you're gonna have different groups of of personalities that um do that i think overall generally you talk to baseball guys who do it um who, who play college kids um there's something to be said about that. They're not traveling a bus like single-A players and rookie ball. Uh, it's a little different than that. These guys have been set up, and they're flying, and they're, and they're, and they're living the life better than some double-A players maybe in certain situations. So, yeah, I, I think um, – and, you know, Chris, another thing I'll touch on, 
I watched in in the after the the last game against Kentucky in the SEC tournament and and talking about personalities and and how that works with uh, with players. You know, you you when they were talking about this team and they kind of zoomed in on the bench when the game was over with and there was a pretty direct conversation. Uh, Tim gathers them in the dugout after every game. You can you've seen that before, even in good times and in bad. But if you could be a, you don't have to be a, a real good lip reader to read some of the comments that he was saying to them um, about where they are, uh, how they played in that game, where they need to go from there, how they need to flush this game, the flush the tournament, and get back in it. Um, their mindset. Um, but you know, baseball and sports and kids in general have changed so much in the last twenty years, the last ten years. This is a social media age. It is an age where everything is being uh, thrown at them and they can get quotes from their coaches and fans and message boards. And um, the attention span sometimes of these kids is very little. And you cannot, especially with the, with the, with the transfer portal, the way it is now, you know, I'll tell a story. Uh, I'll digress a little bit here. We, our, my former coach, Roy Muburn, who I think did as well as he could with the resources he had. I mean, the, the guy was an established coach. He did. He we didn't our stadium. It was a joke before they built the Hawk. But he used to give this speech every year. And and if you talk to anybody who played for him, we call it the I-65 speech. And the I-65 speech basically was at some point during the year, uh, if you played horribly or it was going down the tube, uh, he would he would let everybody know that there's three roads that lead out of Nashville. There's I-65, I-40, and I-24. And if you don't like it here, you can get the bleep out. And that maybe worked 20 years ago and 25 years ago because it was a scare tactic, but we knew what he was talking about. And it was his way of saying, let's go. I'm tired of it. If you don't like it, get out of here. Well, my point with the fans trying to figure out here of what's going on and is there's, there's going to be a team meeting is it, who's going to be the guy who's going to, who's going to lead this group. And is there going to be a butt chewing in the locker room and what can they do? Today's kids are different and, and, and they're just different. They're, and if you give them the I 65 speech and tell them, if you don't like it, get up out of here, they can get <laughs> they'll, up, they'll get take out it and land an NIL deal. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, um, so that's a very different thing, and you've got to be and being a fly on the wall. I mean, I've played the game, I've coached the game, and you just—it's almost the John Wooden situation where he was quoted as saying, you know, he told parents that played for his kids played the, the parents that their kids played for him. He would tell them, you know, I'm not going to treat your kid the same, but I'm gonna love them all the same. I'm going to treat this guy differently because this guy can take it and the, and the other guy can't take the same way that I, you know, Christian Little, the way you handle him might be different than the way you handle, you know, Tate Colwick or the way you handle, uh, you know, any of the, any of these players on the team. Uh, and Ray K. Bradfield might take a butt chewing differently than, and so I think because of the way that the world has changed, um, that you got to be careful if you're a fan or you're an observer and you're sitting there looking at it going like, well, this team needs to have their butt chewed out or they need to go run stadiums or they, I mean, it's, it's, it's different because once you go to the well too many times and try to do that, it doesn't work. It, it, it it's false. They, the kids sense it. They know that it's false. You got to pick your poison and you got to pick your, at the times that you do that. So I think that's where they are in, in it right now. Um, and they know that these do these coaches have been doing it for longer and and know more than I even begin to know. Uh, but it but you know looking at where they are in this stage of the season, it's important to understand that sometimes that can be seen as just they'll be just ignored. And I think what you're going to see this weekend is you'll know pretty well on early if if this team has. I don't think it's going to be anything that's going to be like well they're going to drag on and you're going to. You'll, you'll be able to tell real quickly if this thing's going to and barbecue or this team's going to fight. And if it doesn't work out, you can definitely say, well, it just wasn't their year. This team has the capability. They have the athletes to do it and get it done. But some years it just, it's, it's, it's not in the cards. And I think, I think there won't be a thing where you, I think you'll know pretty quickly 
as, as far as how they're going to react and, and get off the carpet. And if they don't, it just wasn't their year. Let's talk San Diego for a minute. Uh, San Diego went 36-18, and 18, won its conference tournament. Looks like it was 14-9 and nine away and 4-0 and oh on neutral sites. The top of their order looks pretty outstanding. They've got four guys, Caleb Ricketts, Chase Medroth, I think is how you would pronounce it, uh, Kevin Sim and Jack Costello, who all hit pretty well. Um, they had three guys with double-digits homers. That would be Sim, Medroth, and Ricketts, who hit 16. Uh, the rest of their lineup looks like it's okay. Um, they've got pretty decent on-base percentages across the board. Uh, so that's the thing. that They walk a little bit 236 times as a team. Pitching-wise, they've been alternating between Bryce and Maltz and Ryan Chrysler as their number one. I don't know how they play that. Maltz is a lefty, had a 4.09 ERA, 83 and two-thirds innings, struck out 124. That's walked, impressive, yeah. And only walked 21. Looks like the home run ball was what bit him. He gave up 15, or excuse me, 14 of those, also 15 doubles and two triples. Um, Chrysler, I think, was their number one starter the last weekend of the year. He wasn't as effective. 477 ERA, 54 and two-thirds innings pitched, 49 strikeouts, 22 walks. He's a righty. I don't know how San Diego plays that. If they say, hey, we're, we're, if we're going to win the regional, we're going to need to save Maltz for Oregon State and bank on beating Vanderbilt. Uh, but that's what this team is. It outscored opponents by 114 runs this year. This is a pretty good team and, and certainly probably one of the better three seeds in the field. Yeah, I mean, they had some impressive wins early. They, you know, open up with Oregon, which is never an easy task, and and they win three out of four, and they've had some impressive wins against some NCAA tournament teams. As you mentioned, the tournament uh, that just concluded last week, they win four straight, um, you know, and along the way, again, they, they had some impressive series wins against some pretty good baseball teams. So they're, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. It's going to definitely be a matchup deal when they you know watching watching tape looking at spray charts looking lefty righty because as, as mentioned i thought there was i just took tim corbin said exactly what i knew what he was going to say when the question was going to be asked like you know everybody's assuming carter holton's the number one right now he's but you know you at their point there in the season the last couple of weeks you could pick a name out of the hat um and say, well, this guy's the number one, or this guy should be the Friday starter. I, I think more so than any years, they could throw whoever they throw Friday night would not shock me. It would not shock me one bit if McIlvain got the nod. It would not sh- shock me if if Holton got it because they don't really have a definitive number one. And, and you know, Tim said well, we don't put labels like that. I think it was his quote. Uh, I think he probably meant on this team. In years past, there's definitely been labels. Um, and, and so if, if Holton's your best pitcher, but he doesn't pitch in game one, it's really not going to shock anybody that, and it's going to make it look like they're holding him back because they've done musical chairs pretty much the last couple of weeks and thrown guys that you didn't expect or that wasn't conventional. So I don't think they have to worry about that. Like in years past, you know, when, uh, David Price is pitching, you say, well, they're going to hold him back. Well, you knew he was the number one and he pitched on Friday night in that regional against Austin P there's, there is some, you know, you, you've got to wonder in some of these regions and it happens. And sometimes it use, it can bite a team or two in the bracket. If you hold a guy back, not saying the Vanderbilt will, because like I just mentioned a minute ago, I don't think it'll surprise anybody who starts. Uh, but there is some truth to some coaches doing it saying this is going to be the best chance. I think New Mexico state's terrible. Um, so if, if I wouldn't be surprised at all if Oregon State did that, um, I think Oregon State got a pretty good draw, and they for a team that I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, three national seed, and they didn't win the they didn't win the conference tournament, and they didn't win their conference regular season title. Is that correct, Chris? Uh Stanford may have won the regular season, right? Yeah, so, I mean, you're a three national seed, and they strength of schedule was a big thing with them, right? Right. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done before you even talk about Oregon State. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a region they, they 
have the ability if they can do some stuff they did in the middle of the year and and Enrique can get on base and they can slap the ball around and they're 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 five through nine guys have to come through. They have to or they're not going anywhere fast. And uh that's just been the case, you know the last five, six weeks. I mean if they can play like they did against Ole Miss they can stick around and, and have a chance to win this region. If they don't, it's going to be a, a quick exit. Uh, and, you know, uh, guys going to the Cape and wherever they're going all over to do that, and they'll be able to get up there pretty quick compared to years past. So um, it's a formidable region. It, it feeds into the Auburn region. Um, and on paper, that's something I think that a team out of this region, if it were via Vanderbilt, would – not scare most people. I think Auburn's good, but um, it's a team that you'd be familiar with. But a lot of work to be done definitely before we even talk about that. Stanford did win the Pac-12 despite yeah. losing two of three at Oregon State, all three pretty close games. But, yeah, let's talk about the pitching for a minute because I, I think Chris McIlvain has pitched better than his lines have indicated lately. He got no defensive help against Kentucky. Um, pitched pretty well against LSU till that fell apart pretty late. Um, you know, has been brilliant at times, had the no-hitter at Kentucky in which he threw seven innings. McIlvain, the issue with him has been walks. He has walked 43 and 79 in the third innings. Now, he's only hit two batters. Holton has walked 29 and 74 in the third, but he's hit nine, so that evens that out a little bit. But you look, Oregon State has walked 355 times. That's that's a ton of walks. That's that's yeah. how they beat you. Not so much with the long ball. They've got one guy who hits them a lot. That's Jacob Melton. But their on-base percentages up and down the lineup are 400-plus. In fact, they've got six regulars who are over 400 on-base percentage. You know, if you're doing it with the matchups, you, know, you you got to beat San Diego. But I think their best bet for winning the first two, and it's a big gamble, might be go to McIlvain against San Diego and then go Holton banking on you win that game and you face Oregon State. Yeah, I, I, that's the way I would think that it could happen, um, that, it, that it'll go. I mean, you're going with a guy who's been around of those three the longest. Um, you know, you just got to hope that he can throw strikes and get to the McIlvain of, of old when he the, how he pitched in the series against Kentucky because that what is alarming again is the walk with the team that walks as much as they do and he's got 43 in 79 in the third inning so he's he's your bell cow he's pitched more innings than anybody on the staff um, wouldn't surprise me if they tried him out there Friday night you know with Futrell the issue that I noticed with him and the, and there was some talk I don't know if the gun was off in Hoover uh, there was some chatter about that at various sources, but, you know, Futrell was consistently 87. And I know he didn't throw that hard to begin with comparatively. My goodness, I wish I threw 87. But uh, I thought his velocity was a little bit off compared to what he's been pitching, um, and, you know, and his curveball was definitely off. Um, didn't throw it very very much anyway. He's mainly a fastball change pitcher, and his change is deadly when it's on. Uh, but he has not been able to locate his curveball and, and thus has not thrown a lot. Um, Holton, the way through against Ole Miss, if he can if he can replicate that, they got a chance to do some damage, whoever they play in the region when he pitches. But that first, second game, Chris, is so critical. It's almost like if you the, getting the two wins in a row is so paramount um, compared to if you lose one of the first two, it really doesn't really matter. You still got your path is is a hard one to get through. Um, they have the numbers. You got to wonder though with with who you're going to get with Christian Little and if Maldonado still has enough in the tank um, compared to where he was, you know, compared to this time last year when he's pitching in Omaha starting a game. Um, and then Christian Little, I think, is the wild card. I mean, I, I think that kid has all the talent in the world, and, and when he's on, he's on, especially from the wind-up, as I've talked about um, in past podcasts. I think he's so much better in the wind-up than the stretch right now. But he's a guy that, you know, the depth is there. If they were to get in a loser bracket situation, they could get through and have some guys penciled in to, to get them through. But it is so paramount in these regionals that if you can get the first two, life is is so much easier on you on depth-wise and 
psychological wise and, and, and rest and all those things are just, those intangibles are so important and getting the two and then sitting there and have people come and fight up the bracket to get to you. Here's a stat for you. Oregon State reached base by walks or hit by pitches 412 times. That's amazing. In, in 59 games. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a little West Coast style. If you notice, if you notice there's a theme a little bit that, I mean, Hawaii was like that. It, it, your West Coast teams tend to do that um, more so than the big ball kind of in the Southeast and, and kind of the, the Big Ten type ball uh, where they're blasting the ball around the park. It seems like that's, that's not an unusual stat when you compare a lot of those teams. All right, I'm going to do a little exercise with you. We're going to pick one key hitter, one key fielder, and one key pitcher. I'll start with hitter. What hitter do you think is key in this series? I've got my answer, but I'm going to let you go first so that I don't bias yours. <sighs> Let's see. If, if I'm going to say a guy who is key to have the production um, for this tournament, for this team to go, Hitting wise, uh, I might surprise some people. People, but I, I think that Parker Nolan has the ability and um, where he's positioned in the lineup. If he can have a big uh, weekend, um, I think it's it will catapult this team uh, to some some good things. But the way he he has it, it's been sporadic. He's got power the opposite field, which he's shown a lot. Um, but I would say mine would be just because of where he is in that lineup. If, if he, that's why it's critical. I'm not worried about Bradfield getting on base. You would like to think that Spencer Jones and Keegan's be able to, you know, show their worth with where they're positioned. But again, I'm looking for those guys five through nine, somebody somewhere has to, um, rise to the top for this team to be able to win this regional. And that's why I pick him. Okay. I'm going to go Dominic Keegan. Because Keegan was hitting 400, what, a month ago? Yeah, he's, he's down at 363. Keegan is the kind of guy that can almost carry you to win by himself. He and Spencer Jones. And I think if they get him hitting back, and I'm not trying to be critical of Dom, he had such a fantastic season that eventually that's got to come down to earth. But if Dom Keegan hits like the Dom Keegan of, of two or three weeks ago was hitting, that's potentially a game changer for them. Yeah, and and I, I see your point there. Um, and Spencer Jones is three sixty seven, right above him, four points higher. But th- those two guys, you know, that my my thing about Parker Nolan was just expecting that those two guys were going to play up to their capabilities, and so I was kind of using him as the glue at the bottom of the order. But yeah, I, I could see that uh, those two guys have got to rise to the top. Your experienced guys, guys who played in Omaha. Jones, Keegan, Bradfield. I mean, th- those guys have got to be able to. And, and Carter Young for you know Carter came on a little bit at the SEC tournament. You saw some signs of life, um, which is important. Um, you know, he played, of course, was a stalwart, and you know, he was hurt last year in Omaha and played through it. But you know, you got to hope that he can improve on you know, and kind of build on what he did in the SEC tournament because there were some flashes of some old Carter Young at the plate. So. They just got to be able to feel the ball too. I mean, you you can't. I mean, you know, you cannot be in a situation where you're booting the ball around and throwing around like they did in in some of the games in in Hoover. And if you're going to do that, you're not going anywhere. This team, at minimum, if they pitch and play defense and just have some guys rise to the top, they can maybe make some noise. But if they're not doing that, if they're throwing the ball around, booting it, and making plays uh, not making plays that they should on a consistent basis uh, all of this talk about the hitting is a moot point okay key arm for the series your pick uh i i think that uh i'm not worried about holton um so much as because i think he's been you know you look at his numbers 92 strikeouts 29 walks the way he pitched in in hoover was dynamite I'm going to have to say it's um, McIlvain. Uh I, I would tend to maybe say Christian Littles just because I just, I just got, I believe in the kid's talent. I really do. I know people have coached him in summer ball and Team USA, and I can see it. The talent it just oozes out of his body. Um, the, the kid's talent level, 
it would be between, because I think he's going to have to pitch in a big way this this weekend somewhere. And um, but if it's I, I, I think McIlvain would be the key there. Just the fact that if he does start Friday, which we don't know anything, we're just guessing. Whenever he pitches, you got to think you got to be able to get six, seven, eight innings out of him uh, of experience and having been there. Uh, so it's tough decision between those two. I guess I would lean towards McIlvain if just if we assume he, he starts Friday, which we don't know. But it's one of those two, McIlvain and Little, might surprise some people. Yeah, McIlvain was my pick too. I'm similar to you. I, I kind of count Holton. I mean, and, and it doesn't work like this, but Holton seems like more of a sure thing at this point. McIlvain, the outcomes have been uh, very wide. Again, you've seen him dominate at times. You've seen him struggle at times, although I think a lot of Chris's struggles uh, have come from not getting help in the field from teammates. But McIlvain's given up 11 home runs. Again, uh, the, the park plays maybe a little bit more in his favor with that. It's going to be the free passes, which we talked about earlier. I'll give you two honorable mentions. Little was actually the guy I was going to pick at first, too. Uh, but there's a chance that by the time Little gets in the game, it's basically decided one way or the other. If those starts don't go well, basically they're going to have to get great starts from McIlvain and Holton to have a chance in this thing. So that's where I I drew the line with that one. But I'll I'll tell you another one to watch, Devin Futrell, because you mentioned the confidence. When Futrell has got his confidence, he can really pitch. Now, it seemed to me like – he was up against a wall where when he faced those elite teams, he couldn't get the outs that he was getting in the midweek. That said, Futrell gave up eight home runs in 57 and third innings. Again, the park plays more to his favor. He only walked 11 guys this year. And that, that's a thing where, you know, say they're playing Oregon State in an elimination game, if they can get his confidence back – the fact he doesn't walk a lot of guys to a team that takes a ton of walks, he could end up being a pretty important piece in this too. Yeah, and if you look at his walk totals of 11, I think two or three of those were in the SEC tournament. I mean, I think the the number was like eight before the SEC tournament. I could check on that, but um, I know he walked a couple Tennessee players, which was uncharacteristic. Yeah, I, I see your point there. He um, and, and I've said this um, – to friends casually, and then Tim echoed it. I, I think uh, there, there's a big difference between pitching against Tennessee and pitching against uh, you know Western Kentucky in the middle of the week. The hitters are better. The the limelight's out there. The crowd's bigger. It's just you you know heart probably beating a little faster. Uh, but um, you know he's going to be an important piece this weekend if they get to him. Um, I, I just don't see, and I don't know if you agree. But I, I just don't see this team winning it this weekend if they don't win the first one or t- definitely the first one. No, they, they've got to win the first two. They've got to win the it. first two. You, you win the first two, you put yourself in a position with if Little is still out there um, awaiting the ball uh, in a game three or four, that's pretty formidable. Or you have, you know, uh, depending on how, you know, what his mindset is that game, you've, you've got, you know, a line of arms sitting there waiting uh, to pitch you through to get to the super regional. But uh, I think it's, and I think the staff probably knows that they got to get to two wins as quickly as possible. The first two to have a shot. Key fielding guy for them. Uh, I've got mine. Let's hear yours. Uh, Let's see. I mean, I, I think the all year long, we've talked about this. We talked about it in February first and third or, or, uh, are the key spots um, where when I say key spots, it's been the question marks all year. And, and it's and thinking about it over the weekend, you know, first and third have been, especially first have been musical chairs over there for the last couple of years. They really haven't had a guy who's consistently been over there and, and third somewhat lately, but they've got to have some consistency there. Uh, you know, from Diaz, if it's him or if it's Nolan, uh, if it's him to to not make those errors that were done, you got to make the simple play. Um, if you don't, things can get out of hand and unravel really quickly. So, having not knowing who's going to play third this weekend, uh, I'm just going to say the position third. Um, I'm not worried about Carter Young at short. 
he's had some, you know, he's had some situations this year where he probably like to have, you know, his 10 errors. He's probably going to make six. Normally there's four or five that you'd like to have back that he normally would make. But I, I'll say just in a position that's third because they can they got to make the simple play. I'm going to say the position of third base because uh, we really don't know who that is. But they got to have somebody over there who can make the simple play, who can be counted on not to boot the ball and and can be consistent over there. I'm not sure who you're going to pick, but uh, <laughs> sorry to be vague because I just don't know who that spot is over there. Who's going to play it? I'm going to go Carter Young because when Carter Young is I don't. I hate to almost say this. The only way I can explain him is his routine, his errors come on very routine plays. Yeah. Which seems like a matter of focus to me. If he's locked in and playing at the level he can play at, he is he's outstanding. Um, I, I think that turning double plays at key times could really be big in this series. You've got to have him fully functional locked in. I think your third base concern is, is obviously a valid one. Uh, Jack Bolger would be another guy on the list. Oregon State has stolen 74 of 88 times. Um, Bolger's been pretty decent behind the plate a lot of times. I, th- I think he's going to have to be the the guy that carries a load behind the plate uh, because Dom Keegan just really has seemed to struggle lately when he's been back there. So t- to me, that's that's where it goes. I'm, I'm going to give you another key or two as we wrap this up. Um I think the running game is big for them. You saw teams really stymie Bradfield down in, in Hoover by, you know, Ole Miss threw over, what, first 13 times the first time he reached. It was crazy. Um, I like the thing they did where they, they sort of had Bradfield and Vaz at the top of the lineup. Vaz gets on base a lot. So does Bradfield. You get those two guys on at the same time, one on first, one on second. The threat of a double steal puts a lot of pressure on the pitcher. That's the other thing I'm watching is like how well can Vanderbilt run in this event? Because I think when the lineup struggles to score, and certainly you're going to have your hands full to Oregon State and San Diego State, not or San Diego, excuse me, not a bad team when it comes to pitching either. But I think manufacturing runs there also going to be a big thing for them. Yeah, I mean, you got to get Brad, Bradfield on, and uh, this is a copycat game. They're going to be teams that are going to do the same thing. It's not like people don't know that he's going to run. Um, but, yeah, it's just getting the consistency of getting those guys on and then having the guys below them, as I've talked about, five through nine slots, six through nine slots, especially where they can knock them in. And uh, I, I think this is a series. I don't, I don't think you'll see musical chairs too much position-wise. They're going to go with the guys that they feel comfortable with. I think I don't, I don't see anybody. Bolger will be behind the dish. I think every game. I don't see. I don't see any. You know, I think they pretty much have have indicated that's the way it's going to be the rest of the way, just by their lineups. And um, yeah, they're going to have to. Bolger's a good call on the defensive thing too, because uh, the teams that run as much as uh, that, some of the teams in this region that they're going to face, uh, they're going to have to be. Uh, they're going to have to shut it down back there and 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 handle the pitchers as well. So. Yeah, I think those are what we've uncovered there. Some guys who, um, you know, for, for different reasons, are going to be key components, whether, you know, the throwers, the fielders, and the hitters. And I think we pretty much um, uh, I'm in agreement with, with all of you. Chip, we've talked for an hour now. Uh, coming off surgery, I feel like I've maybe reached my pitch limit here. Yeah, I, know I, think, I think, yeah, we're going to have to go to the bullpen here. There's there's other stuff to talk about. The, the, the couple times that I have been out and about and were was kind of socially active and talking to people, I, I kind of felt it in my chest later. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it a day. But I did, did want to give you a minute to talk about your real estate business uh, and everything about that is I know a lot of people are hitting that time of year where they're buying and selling, and you've got a lot of great advice on that. Sure, Chris, uh, and, and glad to hear your voice again and, and good to have you back on here. I know a lot of people uh, have been concerned, so it's been fun doing this and getting back out here and and uh, doing the show. But, yeah, Frederick & Clark Realty is our real estate company. We've been around since 1957. Here in Nashville, we've got two offices, one in Green Hills and one in Brentwood. The market is still – you know, I would I would term it crazy, uh, crazy level. Not as crazy as it's been. I think we've seen some price reductions actually in some areas and a slight bump in inventory, although it is really low. Uh, but some pricing in some select areas have gone down. And when that happens, even in this still crazy market, 
We recommend you get a licensed realtor, which we have 180 of those in these two locations at Frederick and Clark. Give me a call at 615-327-4800, 615-327-4800. I can walk you through the process and hook you up with one of our realtors that specializes in real estate in your area, whether you're buying or selling a home. You need that that consultative approach to real estate where we can walk you through the process from if you're selling, putting your housing on the market, staging it, pricing it, which is extremely important compared to other houses in your neighborhood. On the buying side, man, you need the help. I mean, you need to be able to compete with multiple offers, how to write the contract and the terms. And that's where our, our 180 agents uh, do their work and shine. And we're so proud of them. You can check them out at frederickandclark.com. That's on the web. And you can check inventory of houses, houses in your area. We've got a search engine uh, part of the website. Check out bios of our realtors. And of course, you can call us as well. So give us a call. Give me a call personally, and I'll walk you through it. And uh, thanks for having us, having me on the show. Good to have you back on there. And hopefully with some good news next week, if we can do it again, if you feel like up for it, and um, we'll see how it goes this weekend. Yeah, it does feel good to, to do this again. Again, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to pay a price for it later today, though. Go take a nap. Go, there's go, almost go there's it. almost definitely going to be a nap involved. That's just how <laughs> this goes. But um, it, it's good to do it again. And I, I think next week, maybe we try to have one of these, uh, God willing, either talking about what a what a super regional matchup looks like or reflecting on the season and where the program goes from here. There'll be something to talk about. Hopefully I have the energy to do it. Uh, And and if I do, you'll certainly be the guy to to do one of those with me. All right, man. You have a good day. Take care. Get some rest. All right. Thanks, Chip. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We thank our presenting sponsor, Jody Jones DDS. We thank our other sponsors, Sutherland and Belk and MyPerfectFranchise.net. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, and that's how we make this work, please email me at chrislee70 at gmail.com. We also ask that you subscribe to our website, VandySports.com. That is $99 a year. You get things there that you don't get here. And, of course, please rate, review, and subscribe where you see our podcast. That helps us get noticed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VandySports.com. Follow me at ChrisLee70. And finally, subscribe to our Vandy Sports YouTube channel as well. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast, which is part of the 440 Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. We'll catch you with another episode coming very soon.